Hello, and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jens Nelson, and with me, as always, is Lucas Stock. Yeah, man. This is a podcast that is dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we explore, discuss, and grow as followers of Christ. So, Lucas, man, uh, before we sort of jump into our conversation for today, how you doing? What's new? Uh, man, I am feeling worn out from all this quarantine business. You I betcha. Mean, like, I talk about this all the time with people at work, or not at work, but people from work. Um, and I feel like I almost don't have a reason to be so, like, tired of it, you know? Like, my hobbies and activities are more indoor focused anyway <laughs> honestly but it's like it, when that's all that you do it right. doesn't feel like you have those hobbies yeah and if if anything it's it's pretty hilarious i probably spend more time outside now than i normally would because now i'm Same. like going for walks around the neighborhood because it's the only excuse i have to, like, to, to really stuff. be out except for grocery shopping which even then is like at times a hassle of like waiting in line to be let in because they have do you guys have like masks that you're wearing yeah um and not every store at least not i haven't honestly gone in a couple weeks but um a lot of stores around here are doing like single file lines and only letting in a certain number of people so it's it's not even (laughs) it's not even really a respite to to go grocery shopping like it was more stressful (laughs) yeah so yeah it's yeah, it's just a weird time where I feel like so sick and tired of it, even though I feel like on paper it's like, oh, this is pretty normal, you know, stuff for me. But I just feel like cabin fever to the max. Like I am. Oh, yeah. I'm done. See, it's funny because like I, I, I feel a little bit of what you feel. But at the same time, I also feel a little bit of the opposite because I'm still working so much. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm working 40 hours a week at Quick Trip, which next Sunday, a week from today is my last day. Um, so that's super exciting, but, uh, because I'm still going to work, interacting with people, I don't have that rhythm of feeling like I'm just stuck inside all the time, cabin fever. However, that it's still like, you know, it's like 65 degrees out today. So like yesterday, Hannah and I went for a walk today. We were like, let's like have a picnic lunch. So we picked up Jimmy John's and then went to a park and just like, you know, sat on a blanket and had lunch together. Which we used to do a lot when we were dating, and we were sort of like recollecting those days a little bit as we sat there. But it was like, I mean, it's kind of nice because, like, like you said, it's still like a respite. It's a time to get away from, because she is stuck at home all the time, and so it's yeah. nice to kind of go out and do that stuff. But like, I mean, Definitely. I don't know how much the mics pick up, but literally outside right now, there's you know people mowing their lawns, and you can hear, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, hammers and and stuff like that. Like it's just super nice, and I think everybody's sort of feeling the way that you're feeling and the way that, you know, the way that I'm feeling too, is we're all just sort of ready for this to be done. Right. Um, and it's, it's, it's so funny. I mean, maybe funny is not the right word. It's so ironic to me, uh, because think about like Anne Frank for a second, like Anne Frank literally lived in an attic for what, like two years or something like that. Like, I don't remember her exact story, but she yeah. lived in uh, hiding or you could say in quarantine for a long, 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 long yeah. time. A and we're talking worse, like a way we've worse been quarantine too. Way worse, right. I mean we're talking about people who live in the twenty first century with phones, T V, video games, podcasts, you know, and oh, podcasts, and we're still like, Oh, this sucks, get us back out into the real world. Right. And so then and we can I know complain like, about having to go to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny. And I think, man, maybe this even touches a little bit on some of the 
undertones of our larger discussion today. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe maybe we'll just jump right in. So today yeah. is going to be a uh, a complex topic. It's going to be a very thought provoking topic. It's going to be a very divisive topic. Maybe. Yeah, I, I was about to say, are are you ready for me to alienate? pretty much all of our american listeners because i I um, think so i think this is going to be uh a little i don't know different surprising shocking maybe hopefully not definitely yeah perhaps i think it's gonna strike a nerve with some people i think there's gonna be a little bit of you know maybe uneasiness not because Mm -hmm. it's like not because we're trying to make you feel that way but maybe you've never thought this way maybe you've never considered what we're about to discuss. So our hope is that like, even if you don't agree with us and I think it's okay if you don't, um, but if oh, you don't yeah. agree with us, you'll at least think about this a little bit more, more intentionally, mm-hmm. more purposefully. Yeah. Um, so do you want me just to like introduce the topic and then we'll just jump right in? Is Let's that how we, it. all right. So today on this episode, we're going to be talking, I guess maybe you already know because you saw the title. Um, but we're going to be talking about Christianity, nationalism, patriotism, uh, basically, we're going to be talking about how Christianity and civil government sort of can coexist, if they even can. Um, so, Lucas, I know you have something that you want to read a little bit here. So, would you like to introduce that? Yeah. So, I kind of want to start to sort of frame our conversation a little bit to sort of give us a starting point to think through um, a specific example as sort of a way in the beginning to orient ourselves to how this conversation informs our life. Um, I wanted to sort of run through, I'm probably not going to read the whole thing, but uh, it's it's a little quote unquote, like very little um, op-ed piece that I wrote for um, the student newspaper back in college. Um, and it's called Against the Pledge of Allegiance. So, Oh man, it's, here we go. Uh, yeah, it's kind of... A little on the nose, but (laughs) basically, um, if you are from the United States or grew up here or spent a lot of time here, um, especially in public schools, um, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and so on and so forth is probably something that's pretty familiar. You probably have it memorized. Uh, If you were like me, then every morning at school during morning announcements started or, you know, included um, a few minutes where everybody stood up, put their hands over their hearts, and said this pledge of allegiance to the flag of the U.S. of A. Um, I I think it's safe to say that it's sort of just this typical, almost mundane, very normal sort of patriotic tradition. You know, like you sing the national anthem before football games, you... Um, set off fireworks and wear red, white, and red, white, and blue, and um, celebrate, you know, American independence on the Fourth of July, and and all that kind of stuff. And, and the the pledge is really just right alongside those um, traditions um, a, as a way of sort of acknowledging and or celebrating the country we live in, the freedoms that we have or the story of our country or however however you might look at it i think that's a pretty standard experience for a lot of american people um but the problem for me is that i don't think it's appropriate for a christian to say the pledge of allegiance 
Um, How dare you, sir? How dare you? <laughs> um, and it does, especially if this is the first time anyone has ever sort of come at this kind of a topic in this way. It's, it might seem a little dramatic or extreme, but I think it's it's pretty important to really think about. Um, and I, I think that it feels like dramatic partially because the Pledge of Allegiance seems so mundane and in the grand scheme of things, maybe even insignificant, which makes it really easy to just sort of accept it, to just not really think it through very thoroughly or critically. But I mean, if we think about pledging our allegiance, you know, a pledge is, uh, you know, another word that we could use is is a vow or an oath uh, where we're a we're giving our binding a binding promise or or agreement to do or not do something. Um, That's the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition. Um, And allegiance is is also a pretty hefty word you know if you're making an oath a pledge to commit your allegiance to a nation um it implies that the values goals structures the ideology of that nation aligns with your own values goals structures etc um so you know giving an oath of of commitment of allegiance is is a really like really significant weighty statement to actually be making when you think through it's definitely not neutral we can at least say that yeah, it's not a yeah. neutral thing to do right and i would say that it's dangerous as christians to be saying things like this if we're not even considering the implications um hmm. One of the reasons is I think if you dig through any nation's founding documents, look at the history of that nation, um, explore and really analyze the ideologies at play, um, I think that any Christian will find at least some reasons that might be worth thinking about withholding allegiance. Um, And I think that that, again, might be just something that's new, um, but to help us sort of think through reasons that people might decide that I want to say the pledge. Um, I, I have a couple of, of scriptural uh, passages I want to explore a little bit. Um, for me, the the first sort of objection would, might come from Romans 13, where we're told to submit to governing authorities. Um, and I just want to say that submission and allegiance are not the same thing. Um, submitting to a government means I obey that government's laws right? Um, when they don't go against God's law, as the apostles taught us in the book of Acts. Um, allegiance is aligning myself with that nation's, like I said, ideology, beliefs, um, you know. Is devotion a synonym of allegiance? Um, I think that devotion might not be a synonym, but is a closely related concept i think that if you are going to be devoted to something or someone um i think there's overlap with allegiance i I think maybe like you might you know like in ancient times you might swear your allegiance to an emperor just because you're a subject or whatever and you might not really like him but you but you're stuck there kind of thing um but i think that if you're willingly you know, giving your allegiance to something that it does imply a level of, of commitment, devotion, that sort of, um, 
I'm on board with this person or, or this country or this, you know, program or whatever. Um, so I really want to separate submission and allegiance. So whatever we want to say about Romans 13, whatever we want to say about submitting to governing authorities, it's not the same thing as pledging allegiance to those authorities. Um, another thing that, that comes up, I think, is that the, the story in, in the Gospels when Jesus talks about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, um, and quite you know bluntly, I just want to say that my allegiance doesn't belong to Caesar. Uh, an individual's commitment, devotion, allegiance doesn't fall under something that belongs to Caesar. As an American citizen, you know, that's, that's where I come from. I'm bound by law to pay taxes according to the tax code, according to the rules set out by America's governing authorities. My American money, which is minted by the U.S. Mint, belongs to my Caesar, which is the American government. Um, but my commitment, my devotion, and my allegiance, among other things, don't belong to the American government. They didn't mint my commitment. They didn't create the conditions, you know, that my being came into existence. <laughs> um, my allegiance doesn't belong to Caesar um, the way that my money does. And... Those are some like quick flyovers of just a couple of important government-related passages. And um, the big reason in, to sort of wrap it up that I think Christians shouldn't go around pledging our allegiance to earthly kingdoms is that our allegiance has been pledged to another kingdom. We are citizens of heaven, citizens of heaven Philippians 3.20. We are a new people um, that's not defined by national boundaries, Ephesians 2.14-16. We obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. Um, so our salvation, our future hope, our mission, our citizenship are fundamentally and truly found in the kingdom of God. The question becomes, for me, why would we even think about pledging allegiance to a different kingdom? Whether that kingdom is the United States of America in 2020, whether that kingdom is, you know, the british empire in the 1700s whether that kingdom is the roman empire in the 200s it doesn't really matter obviously every kingdom on earth has some differences and different time periods look different but at the end of the day as christians we're bound to a different kingdom um so that's my hot take of the day <laughs> might not be the only one that comes up in this episode but i like i said i wanted to, to do that not to make an episode about the Pledge of Allegiance, but to frame the conversation when we're talking about nationalism and the Christian faith, when we're talking about Christians relating to governing authorities, local, national, whatever, that's the sort of thing that comes up is how are we thinking through these concepts? How are we thinking through the seemingly mundane practices that just are uh, you know, patriotic American things. There, there's a lot deeper, there's, there's deeper things going on, I think. And I think that sort of challenging people to think through the Pledge of Allegiance is, is hopefully a way to get those gears turning a little bit to, to sort of direct our attention to those deeper things as opposed to just the surface level, um, you know, off the cuff sort of reaction that we might have to certain statements or, or practices. 
So I don't know if that if that made sense. Um, yeah, if, you know, I think it's helpful to add. Um, you know, we're talking. You know, this is a much like we said, broader, wider, deeper conversation um, that could be had over many, 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 many episodes. Um, but to really help, I guess, like hone things in, I think it's helpful to sort of say that, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of talking about politics here. We're sort of talking about government. We're not trying to tell you who to vote for. We're not trying to tell you what party to align with. Um, I'm not even trying to but, tell you not to say the pledge. That's, right. that's for you to decide, you know, and for the church to work through as a as a covenant faithful community right. of, of faith. But but I want to provide my perspective to to, like you said, get at these different aspects of of the conversation, not go around making laws to bind other people's consciences. Right. Exactly. And, and, and I think what is needed to be un- what, what needs to be understood is that as Christians, we are dual citizens uh, you know, we do live in this world. We were created in a very physical world that exists that we can see and touch and interact with. Yet we do not belong to this kingdom. Those who have been born again, those who are a part of the the church, we belong to the kingdom that is to come. Um, so in a way, we ourselves are aliens. Uh, we do not, uh, again, we do not belong here. And so I guess like when we think when we think about this this topic, um, it's helpful to say that ever since the Garden of Eden, so ever since the beginning of creation, the beginning of time, um, when Adam and Eve sees that fruit, we have all been saying, essentially, now we will determine for ourselves what is good and evil. That was sort of like what happened when Adam and Eve reached for that fruit. They were going to decide, we determine for ourselves what is good and evil. And so it wasn't what does God say is true? Instead, uh, it sort of became, what do I want? What is it that we want? And so we basically, we, we disagree with God about what is fundament, fundamentally important. Uh, he insists that loving him is the most essentially important purpose of human existence. That's why we were created, to love him, to be in relationship with him, to glorify him. But as spiritually dead people, apart from Christ, people think that it's something else. So we we think that, um, you know, fundamentally being human is to be a sexual being or to, um, you know, to, to mind our own business or whatever. There's a million different things that we as humans think is most fundamental about being human. Um, but like when we think about this larger topic of Christianity and nationalism and patriotism, obviously we're speaking mainly as Americans because that's our context. We understand that this is a, a broader topic too that isn't just an American issue. But like when we think about what do we consider ourselves to be? Do we consider ourselves to be Americans and Christians? Do we consider ourselves, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a whatever, and I'm a Christian? Like, what is our identity found in? And the problem that arises is that politics often divide. Politics divide the body of Christ. Politics divide our nation. I mean, we have two major parties, but, you know, we have probably a dozen other, you know, smaller parties or whatever. And these are ways that we divide. And I think where problems arise, especially as it pertains to politics, is over issues like refugees or immigration or, um, you know, border security. So these are things that are very earthly, um, tangible things that we can see when people are fleeing their country, or maybe they just want to immigrate to this country to start a better life. Um, You know, politically, we have a lot of ideologies about these things. And I know that there are a lot of 
varying perspectives. But at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself as an alien in this world, as a dual citizen of Earth, you know, you live here, but you do not belong here. How do you think about refugees? How do you think about immigration? Are you simply thinking from like, what betters me? What keeps me safe? What does not, you know, impinge upon my life the most? You know, are, are you only thinking about yourself? Or are you thinking about others? Because what is the what is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So for a minute, flip it for a second. Imagine if you were that refugee or if you were that immigrant who was wanting to you know, start a better life, yet you were refused. Or when you got to that country, you were, um, you know, beat up, spit on, mocked, ridiculed. Like, this this is sort of like what we're getting at, I guess. And we, again, I don't want to get like too political. We're not trying to um, tell you what side of the line that you have to fall on. Because, um, again, this conversation is greater than I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, or I'm libertar- libertarian. Um, so I don't know, that's, that's some of what I was thinking of as we sort mm-hmm. of dive into this topic yeah and i think what's really important is to recognize it's not bad to be involved in politics the the opposite you know especially in in our system where um people have more agency politically than in past epics of history where um you've got you know absolute monarchs who make all the decisions themselves or whatever um it's very good to fight for what's right and politics is one of the um arenas that that gets done and that should get done um and to fight against what's wrong what's what's difficult what's important to keep in mind is who are we like you said what are we thinking what are we using what are the, the ways that we're thinking through any given topic immigration abortion uh how, how the government spends money um, how much money the government should take away in taxes. You know, how do we think these things through? Are we thinking them through not just as individuals, like you said, but also are we thinking them through as Christian citizens, citizens of the kingdom of God or citizens of our earthly kingdom? And I think what's really important to keep in mind is the the problem with identifying ourselves with an earthly power. We see all throughout uh, scripture, incredibly prominently in the Old Testament, um, that the problem with doing that, the problem with aligning ourselves with an earthly power, is that the powers are fundamentally fallen, sinful entities. Um, right. Paul talks about the fact that we struggle against not flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, the spiritual um, forces of darkness. And this isn't merely some kind of abstract, you know, spiritually, you know, kind of, um, you know, almost like, you know, hippie kind of way of talking. But we see um, that literally the powers of the earth are portrayed throughout scripture as fundamentally evil. The first human king we see in Genesis 10 um, was Nimrod. And, you know, unfortunate name for him, but it's also kind of fitting because he was kind of a Nimrod. He was, he was evil. He, um, set himself up as king. He was the first human political leader that we, that, what I should say is the first human political leader, uh, recorded in scripture. So this is sort of our scriptural canonical introduction to human kingship. And what do we get? 
we get the Tower of Babel, <laughs> um, which is the archetype and the prototype of fallen humanity setting themselves up against God's will. Right. Flash forward in First Samuel 8, uh, Israel, who had been freed by God um, from slavery in Egypt, they had been delivered the promised land as God promised by God's leadership and power. Um, they had spent many generations and, and years and years and years functioning without political leaders. The judges would be raised up to address problems of foreign oppression, problems of sin. Um, there was no uh, monarchy. There was no, you know, quote unquote state, which is a little bit of an anachronistic term to use for ancient Egypt, uh, ancient Israel, but you know what I mean. First um, Samuel 8, Israel goes to Samuel and they ask for a king. And Samuel doesn't like that. He's upset. He tries to persuade them. They don't want it. What does God tell Samuel? He says, don't worry, Samuel. They're doing this evil thing. Remember, all they've done is ask for a king. <laughs> they're doing this evil thing. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And that was sort mm -hmm. of God's encouragement to Samuel. He's like, go, you know, give it to them. That's what they want. And, you know, we're kind of, we'll kind of go from here. It's sort of my extremely <laughs> uh, paraphrased version. All throughout the book of Daniel, we see specific stories of, you know, the powers that be being evil with the um, exile of, of the, the Jews, the taking of, the, of, of Daniel and his friends and, and all the others into captivity, um, the, the giant image that needs to be worshipped and then being... The chocolate bunny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then being uh, thrown into the furnace when, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't worship. Um, we see the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has of the statue and, and the different... Uh, each section of the statue represents a different earthly kingdom. And what, what, what happens? A giant rock smashes that statue. And who is the giant rock? It's, it's, it's Jesus. It's, it's the, um, the son of man. And, uh, of course the different beasts and animals that Daniel sees later that represent different kingdoms. Um, and ultimately, you know, that culminates in revelation 13, where the beast, that emerges is is uh, associated with with human government, um, and so we see this pattern of these powers are not on our side, and more importantly, we shouldn't be on their side. Um, it's not a it's it's not a a matter of we need to have a good a good king. It's a matter of we had a good king. His name was God, and we've rejected him because we want a king <laughs> like the nations. And right. Um, the what I find extremely helpful here is um, there's there's a work by a theologian uh, named John Howard Yoder. He uh, I think he died in the 90s or like very early 2000s. He he wrote I think in like the 70s 80s and, and taught. He was a, a Mennonite, which was it's kind of cool. Like yeah, it, he's really the only Anabat like modern Anabaptist theologian I you know at all familiar with his work so it's kind of <laughs> nice to get a different perspective but um disclaimer he was not a great dude he uh was engaged in some sexual abuse and and uh, mistreatment of of people under him and particularly of women and and he uh you know 
was by no means a saint. Well, he was a saint in the fact that he was saved by grace, but he wasn't a saint in terms of how he conducted himself all the time. So I am aware of that, and and um, it is an unfortunate truth. But um, his work in the politics of Jesus is a pretty uh, well-known book of his. Um, he has he has a section that where he he sort of summarizes this um, dialectical uh, process that the powers um, go through when we when we analyze them. So to begin with, we we start with God created the world, and He created you know, the powers of nature, he created um, the world, and it was good. But in the fall, sin enters the world, and these powers, they've rebelled against God, and they've fallen. Um, However, the third step, despite the fact that, that the powers are fallen and sinful and sort of set up in opposition to God, they cannot fully escape the providential, the providential sovereignty of God. As the king of the universe as the all-powerful creator god as we see in romans 13 even these evil fallen sinful powers are put into place within the providential sovereign plan of god whatever that looks like it is obviously we're not gonna like try and like piece together you know Figure oh out god's you know sovereignty. here's where god's sovereignty put this president in you, you know like that we can we can maybe do that and it probably would be wrong so you know we're talking more big picture as paul says um that god is in control of everything um so we take this this created good fallen under god's sovereignty dialectical sort of um sequence and if we apply this to israel's monarchy um it kind of goes like this so god created the world and then later he created the people of israel with him as the authority over the people. He ruled them. They were they were actually a theocracy in the real sense of the word. Um, kind of a controversial term, might make some people uncomfortable, but you know, that's they, they didn't have a, a human political authority. Um, then in rebellion, the people reject that order of their creation and constitution as a nation, and they demand a human authority. They demand a king like the nations that they see around them. God, you know, allows them. And step three, he works in and through that rebellious power. So even though the the monarchy of Israel was conceived in rebellion and was modeled after rebellious powers, um, it, it doesn't ever escape the power and sovereignty of God. And we see God working in and through it, even as king after king after king fail spectacularly. You know, for every, I don't, I don't know the real numbers, but it seems like for every good king, there are like ten bad kings, and maybe that's exaggerating, but certainly for no. every good king, there's at least one bad king. It seems yeah. in terms it's of the, mainly bad. Yeah, and and even, you know, even the even the good kings, because they're sinful humans, as individuals fall into sin, but also um, as even during times of of good um, leadership. It's not like the people of Israel were because they had a human king that they were better off or they were even right. better I mean, even followers under David, of Yahweh. Like the God, the man after God's own heart. Even then, there was. I mean, David himself was sinful, and right. so were the people. Right, and that's not. We're not saying, haha, you know, poo poo on Israel. They were so bad. We're, that's the way the world works as uh, being in a state of of sin, um, and, and that's the way it's going to be until all things are redeemed 
um, finally through Christ at, at the at his return. But we are living in this current state where we have these powers that were meant to be good. They fell, but even though they, you know, because they fell, they're they're sinful and they're evil. But even in their sinful fallen state, they are still subject to God's authority, and that's why. Um, we obey God rather than man without doing revolution. We're not here to overthrow the powers. God set up the powers the way that he set them up. And that's a mystery that we couldn't, even if we tried, couldn't possibly hope to understand thoroughly. Right. So what, what do we do? The powers, in our case, the American government, they're relativized to... Um, almost insignificance in our life. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but we're much more concerned with rendering unto God what is God's. We obey God rather than man. Um, We are to submit to those authorities because God has providentially placed us under them. So yeah, don't go 80 miles an hour in a school zone. You know, there are a variety of reasons you should obey that law. (laughs) Um, Probably the fact that it's a law is... um, probably on the lower end, probably the fact that you might kill yourself or small children in a school zone is probably a bigger reason not to speed like that there. So maybe not the best example, but pay your taxes. If you don't pay your taxes as some kind of religious objection, that, that's that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just read the New Testament. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, the Chinese government makes it illegal for Christians to share their faith. Sorry, we obey God rather than man. So the Chinese right. Christians don't follow that law. Um, and they shouldn't. And that's that's sort of where we're in this tension, um, where we live in, in this bizarre, yeah, I mean, I, I say it's bizarre, it's just the way it is, where we are, we are dual citizens, and that puts us in a very complex uh, situation. Um, right. And I think that it's really important to view, to recognize that tension and to, you know, going back to the Pledge of Allegiance, I'm going to render under Caesar what is Caesar. I'm going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to pledge my allegiance to this power because I've already given my allegiance and been grafted into the kingdom of the one who is actually in control of this fallen power that we call um, the federal government of the U.S. So, um I don't know if that provides, hopefully, you know, I meant what I was trying to do is sort of provide some tools to sort of think these things through in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, very big picture, uh, you know, looking at scriptures, teachings and examples. Um, But what I kind of want to get to as well is a little more, you know, what do we mean specifically when we say something like, you know, nationalism? And how that fits in with Christianity. Hmm. Does that make sense? So like, what, like what, what would you sort of say? How would you define, in light of everything we've talked about, what, what would you say are the issues with um, nationalism and Christianity mixing together? Yeah. Well, I think sort of as we've said, a lot of this comes down to where our allegiance is, where our devotion is, where our heart is. Um you know, I think sort of as followers of Christ, we are citizens of one. We are not divided. Like we do not belong to two different people. We, we, you know, we have one Lord, one baptism, one kingdom. And 
in this world, we are all sojourners, exiles. I mean, that's a word that even um, that Peter uses in his epistles. You know, he calls his people that he's writing to elect exiles. Um, that doesn't mean, I mean, it partially means because they've been exiled from their homeland, but in a very d- real sense too, they're exiles in this world. They do not belong here. This is not their home. Um, so we're sort of like sojourners traveling scattered across the earth as little colonies of heaven, so to speak. Um, and so when we think about, um, when we think about this, we intrinsically in our nature, we have some sort of desire to still be governed. Like that's why Israel wanted a king. That's why the peoples of the earth from the very first peoples all the way till now have leadership, have rulers, they have people that are over them. Um, But obviously, as you sort of alluded to, we don't want to be governed by God. So it's like a superficial submission. Instead of submitting to the creator of the cosmos, instead of saying, thy will be done, we say, no, our will be done. And so like, I brought up Judges 17, 6 here, and it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's sort of a theme that like all throughout Judges, and that's sort of like, that was the government for a little while, like these judges that were put in place until Saul and then David and and so forth became king. So there was no, there was no king, and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And that's sort of like what we still do today. We want to be governed but it's a superficial government because even even though we want to be governed in a sense, we still don't submit to the government that's ahead of, like put in place over us. Like how many people still go 35 and a 25? How many people break the law by you know illegally bl- buying drugs or illegally buying alcohol or um, murdering and getting away with it or whatever? Like there are laws put in place over the people as in an earthly sense that are broken every single day, thousands of times a day. Um, and so we, what we really want is we want a king in our own image. We want to, we, in a sense, we want to be the ones on the throne, but because we cannot be, we want to put people who will represent us um, as best we can. And that's something that I think is like an, an overarching narrative, not, a, not only of like the Old and New Testament, but of even life today. Um, so when we, when we think about, an, you know, an upcoming political season, the person that we're going to vote for and elect is going to be someone who we think is going to best be that king in our own image, who will represent our values, our, um, you know, political leanings. And and so a lot of this conversation is tied up in the sovereignty of God. Like, I don't think we can escape, escape that. Um, you know, we sort of have to ask, do we believe that he is ultimately in control of all things? Like, so for example, to be a Christian living in Nazi Germany, um, what are you going to do in that situation? Do you believe that God is sovereign even in a governmental, you know, a government like that? Are you going to believe that he is good even when the circumstances are not? Um, because I think a lot of, especially in our country, so to like to actually get to your question now, um, you know, how Christianity and nationalism, um, I think one way that we could define nationalism is sort of a love, a, an allegiance, a devotion to our nation. Um, our nation becomes the idol. Our nation becomes the God that we worship. Um, and so, you know, we, we want to, you know, in America, especially we have this idea of the American dream, uh, of, you know, being healthy, being wealthy, being, um, you know, having the nuclear family, you know, I got my, my, I'm married, I got my good kids, they go to a good school. Like there are all these like really, um, lofty ideals that we hold to and ascribe to, 
Um, and so when things sort of start to crumble around us, and maybe this is a good example of like, you know, COVID-19, you know, we sort of joked that like, we're sort of going all cabin fever and everything. And so like, we sort of have to start asking ourselves, like when our circumstances are bad, like when, you know, let's say we have a recession, um, let's say there's a famine in the land, let's say, you know, whatever, are we still going to believe that God is good? Are we still going to believe that he is in control, even when things are really hard? And so I think one of the things that really defines Christianity and nationalism um, is this idea that like, we want our nation to provide for us. We want you know, we want them to, um, you know, ensure that our borders are protected to ensure that, you know, we have access to healthcare. We want to ensure all these things, but ultimately we're putting our hope, we're putting our allegiance, we're putting our security in things that are often evil, temporal, fallen, when in reality, God is the one who is going to be, um, the one whom we should go to for those things. And I'm reminded of like Colossians one, which I read Colossians one all the time, but I think it's helpful. And it's, it's sort of like this grand Christological passage about who Jesus is. It says the that cosmic he, Christ, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, all things, whether in heaven or on, uh, or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So that's like, I mean, again, very Christological. It's talking about who Jesus is, his, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the agent in creation, um, the fact that in him, all things hold together. Like at this very moment, the fact that we exist is because God is allowing it to be. Were he to suddenly decide that he was going to, you know, let go of his grasp over us, we would vanish into, I mean, nothingness. But like in this very moment, God is um, sovereignly ruling the cosmos. Um, and I think it's really key here too like when we talk about aligning ourselves giving our allegiance to a throne or dominion or ruler or authority um it's it's a form of idolatry because we see that through christ all things were created including all of those authorities through him and for him he is before all things and he's holding all things together like you said and at the end of the at the end of the day the reason one of the reasons that the fullness of god dwelt in him is for him to reconcile to himself all things so paul just got done saying that all these things were created in heaven on earth visible and invisible through christ and that christ needs to reconcile themselves to him so they're not they're not in a state of being good right now, not because God messed up, you know, and made something bad, but because these things which were created include thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities are in a state of, of rebel, open rebellion against the triune God and need to be reconciled through Christ to God. So that's why our allegiance needs to not be with these powers, these rulers or authorities. It needs to be with the one who 
A, created them, B, is holding them together right now, and C, will be the one to reconcile all things to himself uh, in, in, you know, the final day of judgment um, to finally make complete and eternal peace through the blood of his cross. And, and you know, it's not a matter of just sort of, you know, picking and choosing the right ruler, you know, obviously that's important. And obviously human government has a role to play that is good and helpful in its proper place. And what's really important is maintaining the proper place and not, not falling into that idolatry of worshiping the creature rather than the creator, worshiping the thrones rather than Christ. Um, and something the that earth comes... is his footstool. Like he is yeah, on his own throne exactly. ruling the world and the earthly thrones are his footstool. We are exactly. under him. Exactly. Yeah. And one thing that I think is important to remember, especially as we remember, you know, Paul wrote that and he lived in a very different, you know, socio-political world than we do. Um, but frequently in, in the Roman Empire, the church would suffer persecution um when they would refuse to offer either sacrifices or even just a sacrifice of incense uh, to the emperor. Um, The emperor was a divine or at least semi-divine figure, you know, who he, I don't know if, you know, he he was a god or he was connected with the gods, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So it was very, you know, it was it was literal like pagan idolatry <laughs> to be um, pledging your allegiance to the emperor because the way that was done was through pagan religious rituals. Um, so I mean, and this was such a big deal. Um, like the church even had massive debates about whether or not those who did, you know, perform those sacrifices in order to avoid persecution would be allowed back into the church. You know, like that, it was a big deal, and the church recognized it that way. Um, today, we don't have literal pagan deities associated with our uh, quote unquote Caesars, with our thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And honestly, I think like it, that makes it even worse for us because for us, the idolatry of nation worship becomes much subtler and even more insidious idolatry because we can we can fall into these practices such as um pledging our allegiance to these this earthly kingdom without even realizing that it's at the end of the day just biblically speaking it's idolatry um and you know when we do things like sing songs about how great our country is or pledge allegiance to that country when we fly the you know, the banner of that country inside of our church buildings. When we um, do these things, you know, if if I had to wager a guess, I think a lot of people, a lot of saints from generations past would would be pretty surprised that we're doing this. And they might have a different perspective than we do on these things that almost feel mundane to us. um, But at the end of the day, um, have a lot of parallels with straight up pagan idol worship. And I just think that it, you know, Colossians one, that Christocentric view of the cosmos really puts that into stark contrast. I think what it means to be um, 
aligning oneself with the king of creation versus aligning oneself with the king of a earthly uh, kingdom, you know? Um, and I think that, again, I want to take a moment to just highlight if your church has the American flag in the sanctuary, if you love the 4th of July and are grateful for the uh, country that you live in and you think it's a great country, you think it's the best country ever, and um, you celebrate that, I- I'm not trying to make you feel bad or, or try and accuse you of idolatry. What I'm trying to do is to caution you <laughs> and, and me and us about the ways that those practices, those perspectives might be idolatry, idolatrous, or might be opening ourselves up to um, viewing things in a way that sort of sets the balance out of whack and and gives the earthly powers um, a level of power or authority or importance that impinges on the importance we ought to be giving only to Christ. Um, And again, I'm not here to accuse any individual or any group of idolatrous nation worship. I'm not interested in doing that. (laughs) Um, And I'm certainly not in a position to do that to any of you listening or whatever, you know. Um, But I see this plastered all over the scriptures loud and clear. And when we're talking about idolatry, we're talking about something serious, something serious enough to take seriously. Um, And how do we take it seriously? But by drenching ourselves in scriptures and really, really um, taking a look at the world around us through the lens of scripture, through the lens of Christ, rather than the lens of being an American or fill in the blank. Whatever. Right. And I think part of the problem is on one hand, we, we don't, as Americans, we don't think this way. Like we we're we're so patriotic. We're so like America's great. America's an awesome land. All the freedoms that we've been afforded, like that, those are all true things, and they're all they're all things that God has very graciously allowed. That we have the freedom of religion. That we have the freedom of speech. That we can, um, you know, do the things that we do is a huge blessing. Um, but we often don't think more deeply than that. We just sort of grow up in this, like kind of like you said, you grow up, if you go to public school, you say the Pledge of Allegiance, you learn the national anthem. Like I remember in grade school, we had we had a test where we had to write out line by line, word by word, punctuation point for punctuation point, the Star Spangled Banner. Like that was a like that was a that was a, an assignment we had to study, and then we came in the next day and we had a test on it. It's like, why do I have to know the exact wording, the exact punctuation of the Star Spangled Banner to, like, be an informed, educated citizen? Right. Um, and to get and so to like get really spicy with it, you know, like, uh, like take some parallels of, you know, some sort of, you know, the the quote unquote opposite of America. You know, look at look at I don't know, North Korea. You know, and you know, I don't know. There, you know, every home in North Korea needs to have portraits of the the leaders of the Kim family, and they need to like pay homage to it or whatever. That's like, whoa, what the heck? That's messed up. What are you doing to us? That's sort of like how we would would right. think about it. But it's like, how different? I'm not saying that North Korea and the United States government are identical in every sense of the word, but I'm just saying, like, as far as the you know, quote unquote, patriotism that citizens of both countries are taught to show and expected to show fundamentally what's the 
there's not a there's not What's really the difference? a difference. <laughs> well, so maybe this is a good a good segue into the next section that we wanted to get into, and and this is sort of going to be different from how we've done episodes before, um, but I think this is sort of a good time to start asking questions. Um, so I've I've sort of prepared a list of a number of questions that I'm going to be asking Lucas, and maybe he'll ask me a couple too. Um, but we're hoping that these questions will be like sort of application for the things that have been set up to this point. You know, we've we've sort of dumped a lot of information on you. We've talked about nationalism and Christianity. We've talked about, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance and, and is that something that we should do? Um, as Lucas sort of said, like, we really just want you to be thinking about these things. We're not trying to bind your conscience. We're not trying to say that you're going to be going to hell or anything like that. Um, but we yeah, want to be thinking not. more critically, right? <laughs> we want to think more critically, more honestly, um, and more openly. And and so maybe we'll sort of start. You you sort of mentioned um, if your church has a flag on the stage, and that's a I think that's a very common occurrence. If you walked into a church sanctuary or if you walked into um, you know a church building, you'd probably see on one side an American flag, and on the other side of the stage, or maybe right next to it, um, the Christian flag. And so as a question for you, Lucas. What do you say to the church that has an American flag on one side of the stage and a Christian flag on the other? What do you say to that church? Um, I think that the Christian flag is kind of silly. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't but know Jesus what... Jesus himself carried it when he was being crucified. That's right. I forgot. Um, but <laughs> if, if you don't know what we're talking about, you know, maybe you didn't grow up in a very, <laughs> you know, thoroughly American evangelical, you know, Awana type... Uh, Right. church background but the you know the idea of of a christian flag to me has always struck me as a little silly um yeah i'm not saying it's there's anything wrong with it per se but i think it's a little silly and it doesn't it doesn't really have any meaning but especially if you simultaneously fly the flag of a country <laughs> that you're in um next to it and and so i would say that one of the issues, and this is something that I've only really come to appreciate more recently, and this comes from transitioning to a more traditional liturgical approach to ecclesial life and, and theology, but the the concept of sacred space is, I think, really important. And not saying that like this only applies to big stone Gothic cathedrals, and if your church doesn't look like that, then you can ignore this or whatever. But the idea that in a church building, we have the gathered body come together to worship God, um, you know, church being the house of God is not that, you know, like unusual of a, of a way of talking about it. And I think that it's really helpful to recognize that not because we have, you know, magic plots of land or because we build a building in a certain way or say certain prayers over it. Um, God chooses not because he needs to, not because he lives in houses built by men or hands or however how the verse goes, but because he chooses to meet with us in our corporate worship um, through the means of grace, through the preaching of the word, through the gathered, uh, uh, the gathering of the body. Um, a church building, and especially that part of the church building where you go to do worship services and you celebrate the sacraments and you preach the word and you um you know come together in that way is, is a sacred space um and it and it's god's space you know it's a space that's set aside for 
you know, maybe it's maybe it's used for different things during the week, but you get what I'm saying. Like it's set aside for worship. Um, so I think that I would encourage that that the leadership of that church that that maybe move the flag outside of the sanctuary. You know what I mean? Like maybe it goes in the fellowship hall. Maybe maybe. Why do we, you need the flag though? <laughs> well, I'm trying to be as broad and and charitable right. as possible because I, I i think that i would say don't have the flag inside the church we know what country we're in at any given moment <laughs> um right we're not going to forget that we're in america and at the end of the day um we don't need a flag in our church building to sort of remind us of that remind us of the the you know like well the freedoms so that we have to gather to worship like right. you mentioned, there are good things that come with being an American citizen specifically. But we don't need the flag in church to sort of signify that. We, we need to be well, right. grateful well, think- for that and praise the Lord for it. But we don't need the flag in God's space to, to do that. You know what I mean? And like, you, like you're, yeah, and like you're saying, I mean, think about for a minute. Like when you look at a stage, when you look at a platform, when you go into a church everything that's going on is communicating something, whether it's the the arrangement, whether it's, um, you know, the style of music that you do, everything that you're doing is communicating something. And what does the American flag communicate, especially to people that aren't American? You know, let's say you have a family that's, you know, visiting from China, a family that's visiting from, um, you know, Pakistan or whatever, like people, like believers from around the world, they come into your sanctuary. What is it communicating to have the American flag on the stage? And that's a rhetorical question. That's not one that you need, you need to answer, but like one to be thinking about as you prepare for worship services, as you arrange those things. Um, so is, maybe as a next is Christianity, what? are we supposed to think that Christianity, that what goes on on, on that stage, on that platform in the, in the front of the sanctuary on a Sunday morning is, somehow an american tradition an american uh religion and i think i think that, some people think so <laughs> I, and i think i think that's exactly part of the problem is, is that it's not <laughs> we worship a first century palestinian jew <laughs> who uh <laughs> told us to go into all nations and the church is a and always has been <laughs> a global family and body um and no one a nation or culture or language group or region has any more claim than any other to it and quite frankly neither jew nor greek if there was a a nation that had a greater claim to it it wouldn't be america but but there's not you know that like very the key the key there is um we don't it we're not celebrating an american religion on sunday we're celebrating the christian religion which is transcends any one culture or society or, or nation. Right. So maybe a follow-up question that's sort of related to that. And, and this is actually like two or three questions, but it's all sort of related. Um, so one is God on America's side. I think that's something a lot of people think is that, you know, we're a Christian nation. Um, some people even see America as like the new Israel almost. Um, so is God on America's side or any country for that matter, and related to it, is America a Christian nation? Should there be such a thing as a Christian nation? Can a Christian nation even exist? So one is God on America's side or any country's side. 
And two, is America a Christian nation? Should that be a thing? Can that even exist? Can a Christian nation actually be a thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you're, you've picked like extremely easy, simple questions for me to answer. <laughs> um, and you don't have to like go super in depth. I should, mean, just give yeah. you know, kind of your preliminary thought on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I am inclined to say that that no, I, I don't believe God is on America's side. I don't believe God is on any nation's side. Um, when, but God does cheer for the Patriots, right? Is that why they've been winning like the last <laughs> well decade and a half? He he just switched to the Buccaneers, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay, got it, got it. <laughs> um, but. Uh, the the implication that God is on America say say we'll take America God is on America's side so that means he must be against other countries' side right if we're if we're at war with you know in the Cold War we're we're in this long protracted Cold War with the Soviet Union oh God's on America's side that means he's against the Soviet Union or russia or or whatever well no i'm not saying that god's on the soviet union side and is against america i'm saying at the end of the day i I don't think that it's reasonable to say that god is on the side of a country i think that god is on the side of rescuing sinners and binding them to himself in union with his son through the spirit and the proclamation of that gospel message and forgiveness of sins and repentance and and you know whatever else we want to say about the message of um of christ and his work and and life and death and resurrection um and that is that is good news for everyone for every nation and that means among other things that god is on the side of justice and against the side of injustice. We see that all throughout scripture. And that is also bigger than any individual nation. So if you want to say, oh, well, at this very specific moment in history, this nation was doing something unjust and this nation was fixing it, then like, okay, maybe at that moment, God agreed you know the nation agreed that was doing the right thing agreed with what god would have wanted but at the end of the day that doesn't mean that god was on their side that means they were on god's side maybe um right we're not like in a special relationship with god just because right we think we're a christian nation yeah the only the only special relationship with god there is is one of being adopted into his family um through grace alone faith alone by christ alone and um so i so that's sort of my answer to that is like it just seems like a silly question because these these nations are 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 just are just groups of you know they're fallen powers ruling over groups of fallen humans and god is not interested in the story of any individual nation he's interested in the story of the gospel um as far as whether or not they're they're they're, they're, well, I'll start with, can there even be a Christian nation? Um, I think that at the end of the day, the answer is no, insofar as some sort of utopian ideal where the government, you know, you know, some kind of, some kind of, uh, you know, Calvinist Geneva utopia where everything is perfect because 
um, the government is in perfect harmony and all the people are Christians and everything, all the laws are perfectly just and uh, in line with, with God's um, will and God's law. And I think that that's just practically impossible. And even if that happened, you know, people are still sinful. So right. I, it's just one of those things where I think it's almost, it's almost just a non-starter kind of a, kind of a moo point. Um, a moo. It's a cow's opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of a moot point in that. Um, yeah. I, I just don't like looking at it that way. Like maybe, right. you know, if it like we, if, if we can imagine a world where every member of Congress was, a really faithful, genuine Christian, then certain things are going to happen that are good, that are better than if every member of Congress was not a Christian. Um, but at the end of the day, that doesn't make America more or less of a quote-unquote Christian nation. That just means that this nation called America has a greater or lesser concentration of Christians and has laws that are to a greater or lesser degree in line with a Christian ideal. And I think right. that's a very different thing than saying this is a Christian nation, this is a non-Christian nation. Um, there there are no, you know, there's only one chosen nation, you know, and that was Israel. <laughs> there's, And God's people now transcends national borders. And that means that um, we're not called to be a Christian nation. We, you know, meaning, uh, turn the nation we live in into a Christian nation. We're called to be a royal priesthood, um, a holy nation, and that nation is not an earthly nation. It's it's the, the 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 gathered body, you know, the mystical body of Christ across space and time. It's the church. It's not my geographical, political, economic region that I was born into that I transform into some sort of, like I said, Christian utopia. Um, right. And I think yeah. maybe it's helpful too. Like when we think about the, the, the Bible, you know, Jeremiah in Jeremiah, you know, it says, seek the welfare of Babylon, sort of, you know, the welfare of the city, be a good citizen for the sake of, um, here I have, I'm just going to read it. It says, uh, Jeremiah 29, seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Um, so that's, you know, we are in one sense called to be good citizens living in a nation, even if we're exiles in a foreign nation. Um, but think about Paul. Paul used his Roman citizenship on a number of times in ways that benefited him. So even he recognized that even though I'm a Christian, even though I'm also Jewish, I'm also a citizen of Rome and I have certain rights and privileges that I can use, um, within the parameters of, you know, Christianity even. Um, but think about him as a missionary. So Paul left his people, left his country and went out into the broader world to preach Christ. And I know that we have people all over the world doing the same thing. We have missionaries today. Um, but what do you say to the American who considers themselves a Christian, whatever that means to them is maybe debatable, but let's just say there's an American who considers themselves a Christian, but at the same time, they believe that it's our duty to uphold the ideals of the American dream. So maybe this pertains a little bit like to the, the idea of make America great again, um, maybe it pertains to, you know, getting back to our Christian roots, so to speak. Um, there's probably a number of things that, you know, are wrapped up in this idea of the American dream. But what do you say to that person, that American who considers themselves a Christian, but thinks that like, it is my job to uphold the ideals of the American dream? I think first and foremost, we need to 
recognize that our job is to fulfill the Great Commission. Our job is to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, so if we start putting something else, whether that's advance in my career, provide for my family, save a lot of money, um, you know, get certain laws passed in my in my local or state or national legislature. Um, if that, if those things, which may or may not be good and noble goals, depending, start to take the place of Christ's call on our lives as the church and also as individuals, then we have a problem. So I, I would say pretty confidently it's not your job to fight for and uphold the American dream. Now, let's pretend, you know, this is such a nebulous and debatable idea to begin with, but let's just pretend that the American dream was like a good thing and, you know, whatever it means for this person to uphold it, you know, basically means doing good things for people. I don't know. Let's just keep it very vague in general because it is so vague in general. Then, then great, you know, <laughs> do good things for people, you know, um, build up your community, you know, care for the orphan and widow in your community, uh, pass laws that uphold justice or, or advocate for laws that uphold justice, whatever it might be, if that's what it means to, quote, uphold the American dream, um, then that's that's great stuff to do. But at the end of the day, if you're doing it for the American dream, we're falling into that sort of the nation is taking up too much of a central role in, in your thinking, I would say. And we ought to be taking care of the widow and orphan because that's what God calls us to do. If the American dream or the laws of my land or the ideals of my land include me taking care of the widows and orphans, that's great. That's just an example where my land is closer to what God wants than maybe it could be, or maybe that another land is at any given moment. But um, I, I don't think it's it's a good idea to start associating, you know, our vocation as Christians, our vocation as the church, to identify that with something that's not, you know, the scriptural mandate that Christ has given us makes me uncomfortable. And I think, and I think it's mm -hmm. dangerous. So, so I, I would, I would really want to press against that sort of way of doing it. Um, if we're talking more, more generally about things like, oh, I, you know, I want to, to advocate for, you know, I'm a Christian. That's my number one, you know, that's my priority, you know, not worshiping America. America could fall away and everything would be fine because God's in control, you know, you know, but even in, in its own, you know, secondary place. I, I want America to be closer to its Christian roots. So I'm going to, you know, advocate for certain laws or certain cultural practices or whatever, or, or vote for certain people. That's, that's, I think, a much more just sort of secondary debate with lots of fair points to be made on, on either side, you know. Not getting into the, the you know, I think the extent of what it means to say that America had ever had Christian roots is, is sort of somewhat historically debatable, you know, like what exactly we mean by that, to what extent do we mean that? But I do think that it's, this is where it kind of, like you've alluded to a couple of times, like it's, I don't, 
I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with a Christian, you know, voting Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or Green. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. With the with that, you know, Christians aren't called to identify with X or Y political party or fall on this side or that side of a political spectrum. Um, so do you look at American history, study it and, and, and say, you know, for this, this, and this reason, I think that we were better off in this year with, when this set of laws was in place or whatever, I want to fight for that. Like on the surface, what I would just say, just like everything else is just these need, these things need to be submitted underneath the lordship and authority of, of Christ. And I think that that's where the sticking point is, is are those things, you know, subsumed under my devotion to Christ and my um, striving to work for him and to fulfill the call that he's placed on me as a member of his body? Um, Because he doesn't place calls on us as Americans or as Europeans or as uh, Japanese people. He places calls on us based on us being Christians. Um, Right. So I think that, that that's kind of my concern is just are we sort of getting caught up in that, you know, nation worship type trap if we if we're like, oh, the American dream is is where it's at. That's my my life's goal. Well, your life's goal should be, you know, <laughs> the Christian dream, not the American dream. <laughs> right. Which is kind of a I don't I don't really like that way of saying it that I that just kind of came out, but like I I think I think you get what I mean, you know, like, okay, yeah. is that clear? Yeah. And I, so, well, I know we've kind of gone pretty long here and we want to, you know, I guess be respectful of the time for our listeners. Yeah. Um, this is a long one. But I mean, again, we, this could be much, 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 much longer because there's a lot to say here. Um, so there, there's one question I wanted to ask you, but I know it's going to be a long answer. Um, I was going to ask you, was the Revolutionary War permissible um, was it justified? So when we think about like 1770, whatever, um, till however long the revolutionary war lasted in our country, was that something that would have been for Christians to participate in? Is that permissible? Is that, um, you know, something that we should have done? And my short answer is no. Um, I'm curious what your short answer is. Yeah. This is a really fascinating question to me. Um, you can already tell this would be a long answer if I was going to get into it, but um, I find it very difficult. It's funny. Like we think about like, think about violent revolutions throughout history. Think about, you know, think about the Bolshevik revolution. Ooh, the big boogeyman in Russia in 1917. Um, if you, want to say that the American Revolution, the French Revolution, was somehow justified or good, um, then I think you lose a lot of ground for objecting to other revolutions. And, and you have to find other reasons to critique a revolution that you think is bad or that you think produced a you know new government system that was bad. Because I think it's pretty clear that the that because of the Revolutionary War, the, you know, the colonists and, and then new free Americans were significantly better off, at, at least portions of them were. Um, 
certainly politically, the colonies went from being colonies to, um, well, settler colonies um, to being a free, you know, free free from from Britain is what I'll say. Um, and I think that, sure, like, yeah, we're, that was obviously better off for them, especially for the upper strata of society, which is just how it works. But do the ends justify the means? But do, do the ends justify the means? And that's where it's like, well, you know, should should Christians be should Christians be advocating for instigating um, you know agitating for violent revolution I think I think the answer is the answer is absolutely no um, what's fascinating to me you know revolutionary war starts you know Boston massacre happens whoa the revolutionary war you know the Battle of Lexington and Concord happens the Revolutionary War is going on. What do you do then? I think is where the question gets a lot more thorny. Right. And it's a lot harder for me to say, you join up or you protest and object. You know, I don't know that there, that's where I think a much more nitty gritty um, and complex conversation happens. But as far as like, yeah, it's, it's the violent part that I think is the, the problem for Christians. It's right. not necessarily, well, it's definitely not the replacement of a bad oppressive government. Um, I think it's very important because we obey God rather than man <laughs> to right. reject the authority of evil oppressive government when it crosses that, that boundary. Um, and certainly, you know, to be unfairly taxed on tea and, and stamps and Heaven stuff. Forbid. Um, like without without having fair representation in parliament it was was unfair was unjust was oppressive they were you know exploiting the colonists uh for extra tax revenue that, that was bad you know that should not be the case um and at the same time i can understand maybe there's no other option <laughs> than turning your rifles at the british in that situation um and this is where I think I'm going to bring it up again. Jacques Soul's book on violence is extremely important and fascinating and helpful because he gets into this concept of revolutionary violence and, and sort of um, explores it a little bit. But but yeah, I mean, I would think that just as short as possible, like, no, I don't think we should be agitating as Christians for violent revolution. We should be resisting right. evil. Uh, right. We should be standing up for what's right we should be doing everything we can to fight against uh evil and uh, injustice um, but jesus teaches us to resist evil uh by not resisting evil <laughs> he teaches right. us to turn the other cheek um which is which is just incredibly difficult <laughs> yeah uh, forget well maybe forget in your personal life but when you're talking about like government you know, incredibly big, difficult. Yeah. But I think that's the tricky part is that that's what he calls us to. So, well, so to to now to now bring this home and to sort of wrap this up, um, we'll make, we'll just come up with a very practical um, example of of some of what we're saying here. So, if we insist that store clerks or you know people out in you know at your local restaurant, if we insist that they must say Merry Christmas rather than Happy Holidays what have we actually really gained? What is gained by people out in the world saying Merry Christmas? Are the people who are asked to acknowledge the Christian 
you know, Christmas holiday any closer to faith in Christ. Um, Because it sometimes seems as though in our country that lower taxes, a strong national defense, and lobbying to keep Christ in Christmas are more pressing issues than whether our neighbor and friends will spend eternity with God or without him. So um, I think for a lot of people, a lot of Christians, a lot of American Christians, um, these are things that they want. These are things that they um, they hold as high ideals um, and sometimes over and against things that should actually matter biblically. I myself, so I'm, I'm personally convinced that many Christians who are angry with our country would be pacified if only we would return to 1950s America, you know, where there were less drugs in the streets, where pornography was only available over the counter in shady, you know, places um, and movies and TVs portrayed traditional family values. So I'm, like I said, I'm convinced that like some of those American Christians who are really upset with how our nation is functioning, you know, we have, we have a leader who says, you know, make America great again. First of all, when was America ever actually great? What, what are you referring to? What, do, what are you trying to get back to? I'm not sure he's ever even spelled that out. He just says, make America great again. And it sort of riles everybody up and like, yeah, we want to go back and like have things be great. And for a lot of people in our in our world right now, I think, you know, because we haven't lived for the 300-ish years that our country's been around, we think about the maybe the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, an era where our economy boomed after a recession and all that. And we see this as like, you know, maybe we see it with rose, rose-colored glasses or something. Um, but I'm, I'm convinced that like those people who are upset, if we just went back to that, that they would be completely satisfied. They would be happy. They'd be pacified in their frustration. Um so even if no one came to Christ, even if no like eternal like significance happened, if we just went back to that, I think they would be satisfied. What is your evaluation of what I just said? Yikes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that, that there's probably a lot of people who feel that way or, or would feel that way. Be- and I think it's because their, their frustrations are either misplaced or just not thought through all the way. And I think this gets back to keeping our priorities straight. And specifically what I mean by that, let's go back to Colossians 1. Are we worshiping the creature, you know, the the, the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities? Or are we worshiping the creator, the Christ who is above all, created it, is holding it all together, and ultimately is our definition of what's good, what's right, and is our hope and our goal and our mission to to live for him and and to... to, um, introduce as many people as possible to him and i think that when those priorities are straight we realize just how inadequate going back to such and such time or such and such cultural moment or such and such place really is because at the end of the day it doesn't matter (laughs) what you know era of american history you're from if you don't know christ and without Christ, none of that matters. And I think that um, I'm sure there are plenty of people who, and I know that there are plenty of people, I should say, really, I do, that would not fall under that analysis you just gave. Right. Unfortunately, I also believe that there probably are people like that. There probably are people who, um, and I really think, you know, not that this makes it easy to to sort of adjust, but I really think it's it's just misplaced priorities. You know, their their eyes need to be sort of refocused on that that Christological, Christocentric um, 
perspective that Colossians 1 gives us that I think is often missed in the hustle and bustle of our day-to-day lives. And I think that that is sort of a good way to wrap up and, and summarize what we're really trying to do with this long, potentially contentious and controversial conversation is are our priorities right? Are the way that we order our affections and our lives and our perspectives actually reflecting who Christ is, what he's done for us, and what we're called to in Scripture? Um, And that's the question that we want to pose and to leave everybody with when we're, whether we're thinking through the Pledge of Allegiance, whether we're thinking about who to vote for in the upcoming presidential election, how to advocate on a local level in our community, um, whatever sort of, you know, how to culturally bring our kids up and talk about issues of church and state and um, patriotism and nationalism. Um, we're not here to give you the prescription. We're here to point you to the one who has it, which is Christ, and, and to right. to orient ourselves biblically towards him, I, I think will lead to some adjustments that, that you know in the American church in general, um, and also the church at large globally um, in different, you know, everybody has their own tendencies and struggles. And I'm sure it's easier to not worship your government when they're cracking down on your faith than it is when they, you know, don't really seem to bother you that much. Um, so it looks different in different parts of the world and in different times of history. But at the end of the day, what is our focus? What is our defining, um, you know, our point of reference? And if it's not Christ and him crucified, then we have a problem and we just need to reorient ourselves by God's grace through his word. Um, and I think that that's right. sort of what we want to leave leave off with is that we want to take that and apply it to questions of nationalism, to questions of what it means to be living in this earth as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Well, let's let's close with scripture, as you said. Uh, in 2 Peter 3, um, verse 10, it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burned? But according to his promise, we as Christians are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Like, is there any other fitting way to think about our dual citizenship? You know, Jesus said before his crucifixion, Jesus was before Pilate in John 18. Twice, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So we as Christians, we may live in this world, but we belong to the world to come. We live in a physical country, in a physical state, in a physical city, but we belong to a spiritual kingdom. And being slaves, being servants of God, frees us to live like citizens of heaven during our pilgrimage on earth. And I think that's like a really um, important thing to leave you guys with is that all that we see in this world is going to 
be wasted away. It's all going to dissolve. It's all going to crumble. Um, and what's going to stand forever is our king, our ruler, because all human government will eventually end and Jesus will reign forever over the cosmos. Um, it's a really good place to leave it. So Amen. Uh, as we wrap up here, we're going we're gonna to do our customary um, prayer. I'll be reading from uh, the Valley of Vision, and this prayer is aptly titled Devotion. So it says, God of my end, it is my greatest, noblest pleasure to be acquainted with thee and with my rational, immortal soul. It is sweet and entertaining to look into my being when all my powers and passions are united and engaged in the pursuit of thee, when my soul longs and passionately breathes after conformity to thee and the full enjoyment of thee. No hours pass away with so much pleasure as those spent in communion with thee and with my heart. Oh, how desirable, how profitable to the Christian life is a spirit of holy watchfulness and godly jealousy over myself when my soul is afraid of nothing except grieving and offending thee, the blessed God, my father and friend, whom I then love and long to please, rather than to be happy in myself, knowing as I do that this is the pious temper, worthy of the highest ambition and closest pursuit of intelligent creatures and holy Christians, may my joy derive from glorifying and delighting in thee. I long to fill all my time for thee, whether at home or in the way, to place all my concerns in thy hands, to be entirely at thy disposal, having no will or interest of my own, Help me to live to thee forever, to make thee my last and only end, so that I may never more, in one instance, love my sinful self. Amen. Amen. Thanks for praying, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast, or send us an email with any feedback, questions, episode ideas, etc., etc., at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, um, and we'd love to hear your, your thoughts on today's episode, and um, of course, um, anything else that we've talked about or that you want us to talk about. Thank you again so much for all your support. Thank you for all um, the, the, the listens and all the downloads and, and the people you've shared it with. And, and we really, really want to let you know how much we appreciate um, the support that we've gotten as we uh, endeavor to, to continue this, this journey on the Christian faith together um, in this, this, this podcast uh, specifically. Um, so, yeah, just thank you. Just thank you. Can't say it enough. Um, and we hope that you have a blessed rest of your day. And we will see you in the next episode. <laughs>